check one two am i on check 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 all right once again good morning i still cannot believe christmas is over uh, I, I know what the date is but i still feel like we should celebrate it again in like another month uh, I, I, as i said earlier this week i feel like it's still november um but if you have your bibles could you turn to ephesians chapter four ephesians chapter four A few weeks ago, I had a, a huge sermon planned out, and I went over it throughout the week, and I was like, oh, this is a good like hour and a half long sermon. Uh, so I cut it in half, and a few weeks ago, I preached on part one, um, and this week is part two of that same sermon. Um, so as you're turning to Ephesians, hopefully you're there already, Ephesians chapter four, I just want to start off by just saying something that I think is true. You're free to disagree. That's okay. Um, but this, uh, this is what I'm going to say. I think as Christians, one of the most asked questions that we tend to ask each other, that we ask God, is this. What is my spiritual gift? What is my spiritual gift? Out of curiosity, would you mind just raising your hand if you've ever asked this or prayed this before? It's okay. You, you can admit it. I've, I've, I've prayed and asked. I'm curious what it was. Right? This is something that most Christians, especially more mature Christians, tend to pray. God, what is my spiritual gift? And I actually found this online test or survey, and I was like, oh, I got like 15 minutes of spare time. Let me, let me try it out. What, what is my spiritual gift according to the survey? I got halfway through it, and it was like 30 minutes in, and I'm like, wow, what? I got to commit now. I'm, I'm halfway there. So I committed. It took like 45 minutes to do it. I rushed through it, and it gave me... Four, it was like a four-way tie for what my spiritual gift was. I'll just say what they are. I'm not going to explain them. That's not really where we're going with today's uh, sermon, but it relates. So according to this online survey, I have the gift of administration, prophet, shepherd, and servant. Like a four-way tie. And I'm like, how many? <laughs> I think there are like six gifts total. I'm like, wait a minute, that's like all of them. That's weird. Um, so again, there's nothing wrong with going online and taking these tests or these surveys. Um, but to be honest with you, I think the best way to figure out our spiritual gift is just to get alone with God in his word and prayer and ask him. Right? There's, there's some merit to these tests, but they're not going to tell you what God can tell you. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to finish my sermon that two weeks ago, three weeks ago, was entitled The Unity and the Uniqueness of Believers. So if you have, hopefully each of you have, oops, I don't want to show you my answers. Hopefully you have a little note thing. If you need it, maybe you can raise your hand and we can get an usher to maybe drop one off to you. Uh, hopefully this will help you uh, a as we go through the, the sermon this morning. And again, when I use this word believers, what I'm talking about are Christians, those who belong to Christ, right? So hopefully you're there. Ephesians chapter 4, I'll start reading at verse 1. Before I read, just a reminder about the city of Ephesus, right? Paul is writing this letter to the Christians in Ephesus. The city is advanced, culturally advanced, uh, te technology-wise as well, but the city is full of mysticism. It's full of spiritual worship. People are worshiping Greek and Roman gods, false gods, idolatry, angels, demons. They're worshiping and praying to Jesus, but at the same time, people are also worshiping um, other angels as well and praying to other angels. So what Paul does is half, you can sort of look at his letter 
the first three chapters of Ephesians, and this is all review, chapters 1 to 3 is about the doctrine of Christianity. As a Christian, what do you need to know about Jesus? What do you need to know about Christianity? So Paul sets this up in Ephesians 1 to 3, and then in chapter 4, this is the transitional chapter, and we're going to pick up on verse 1, and you'll see the transitional word, therefore. But he starts to now say, okay, in light of the doctrine I've just set up, what is your Christian duty? How should you be acting in light of what you know? So let's read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, and this will cover what we did a few weeks ago when I was up here. Paul says this, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And just a reminder, these six verses, it talks about the unity that believers should have in common as a believer, these are the things we share with other believers. And the three points, if you weren't here a few weeks ago, the three points, main takeaways of this was, the first, every believer, every Christian, should be walking in a manner worthy of their calling by practicing humility, gentleness, patience, love. He just doesn't say, okay, you have to act in a way that's going to impress God or, or in a way that's going to please God. He tells us how to do it. Walk with humility, gentleness, patience, love, and it all sort of builds into the next word. And the second main takeaway was every believer should be eager to maintain unity. Right? And when I think of that word eager, it's not someone who's sort of silently sitting back like this, and they're like, oh, I guess I gotta, should I try to be unified? or should I say? No, it's someone eager who's excited, who's actively trying to pursue unity. We should be eager. And the third takeaway was that we're united by the same spirit, we share the same body, which is Christ. We have the same Holy Spirit within us, the same hope, the same Lord, the same faith, the same baptism, and the same God. And that's why we can call Christians in Africa or Christians in India or brothers and sisters in the Lord because God has adopted us as his sons and daughters. We are making up the spiritual family. We've, we've been adopted, and there are brothers in the Lord, our sisters in the Lord. So really the main takeaway of a few weeks ago was as Christians we should strive for unity. And now we get to today's part, part two, the uniqueness of believers. And before I read, let's just pray. Dear Father, we just thank you so much uh, that we have a building, that we have the ability to meet as a church body, to have fellowship together and to worship you. God, I'm thankful for just another opportunity to share the gospel, to share your word with the church. God, I pray that you keep me in check with your word. I pray that I'm moved by your spirit and not my emotions, not my feelings. God, I just pray that what I say will pierce our hearts and will make an impact in how we think and how we live. God, we thank you so much for, our, for the word, for your word, and that we're able to learn about you. We love you, and in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's continue reading Ephesians chapter 4. I'll pick up on verse 7 and read to 16. But, Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. 
In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now there's a lot to unpack here. So if you have your notes, what I want to do is just give you all four of those points. That way you won't be distracted, or if you miss one, you, you won't be confused later in the sermon. But the first one is this. We'll look at four takeaways as we go through these verses. Jesus has the authority. Jesus has the authority to give gifts. The second is this. We learn what the purpose of gifts are. The purpose of gifts. The third one, we see the importance of spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity. And then number four, the importance of each unique believer. Jesus has the authority, the purpose of gifts, the importance of spiritual maturity, and the importance of each unique believer. So let's jump right in and look at point number one. Jesus has the authority to give gifts. Verse six, but, I'm going to stop there. That's a transitional word yet again. So Paul's going from verses one to six. Here's the unity. Here's what we all together as Christians should believe about God. This is how we should, we should be living. And then he says, but, and he starts to talk about the individual believer. And you can see this, but grace was given to each one of us the individual, according to the measure of Christ's gift. So again, he's transitioning from unity, which is more of the broad Christianity, broad believers, to now the individual Christian, the individual believer, and that God has given us a gift according to Christ's grace and Christ's measure. Christ gave us gifts. And from just using Paul's letter to the Ephesian people, from chapters 1 to where we're at now, these are some of the gifts that we have been given as Christians. And most of you, I think you know this. We read that this. We have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins because of Christ, Ephesians 1, 7. We were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. We have been raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly places, Ephesians chapter 2. We have become citizens of heaven, Ephesians 2, 19. And on top of all those gifts, right, those are all gifts from God, according to who? What Christ's grace. John MacArthur says this about, about this verse, verse 7 in, in Ephesians chapter 4. Each believer has a unique spiritual gift that God individually portions out according to his sovereign will and design. And the word for gift in this verse, in the Greek, it focuses on the freeness of that gift. There's nothing that we can do to deserve these gifts, to earn these gifts. Rather, Christ freely gives. 
And we understand why, according to verse 7, because of his grace. And every commentary and every sermon I've listened to to prepare for this, verse 7, it says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. It's not talking about the gift of salvation, although that is a gift that we receive, but it's the spiritual gifts that we've been given. If you look in the context of how it's written, we know for sure that he's talking about spiritual gifts. Now, continuing on, verses 8 to 10, Paul says this, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Don't get confused as I'm reading this. I'm like, what is he talking about? Ascending, descending, ascending. What what the heck? So Paul now, being the good Jewish scholar or Pharisee that he used to be, he knows the word. He's quoting from a psalm, specifically Psalm 68, to help prove this point that Christ, that Jesus Christ has received the right, the authority to give us spiritual gifts. And in a commentary about Psalm 68, I'm I'm just going to read it so I don't want to mess up about it, but Psalm 68, it's a victory hymn that's composed by King David to celebrate God's conquest of Jerusalem and the triumphant ascent of God up to Mount Zion. After a triumph, after a victory, the king would bring home spoils of war and prisoners of war, and he had the right and the authority to freely distribute those gifts to people in his kingdom. He would come back as the victorious king, giving the spoils of war out to his kingdom. So again, Paul's now depicting Christ as returning from his battle on earth back to the glory of heaven with trophies of his great victory on the cross at Calvary, his victory on the cross. So in really simplistic terms, to boil this down in the, in the easiest way to understand, since Jesus defeated death, sin, and Satan on the cross and his triumphant return to God, he has the right and the authority to distribute spiritual gifts throughout his kingdom as he sees fit. After Jesus ascended up to heaven, he gave us believers this gift, empowered through the Holy Spirit, all because of his grace. His grace. And then Paul, in verses 9 and 10, he uses this word ascending, descending, and and he tells us that since Jesus ascended up to heaven after he died and rose again, he went back to heaven, it means that first Jesus had to descend down to earth from heaven, which is what we celebrate at Advent, that Jesus was born as a baby. He came down from heaven to earth. And even a few weeks ago, I had Dave Barry read Philippians chapter 2, which really depicts the sacrifice that Jesus made. He came down from heaven, humbled himself, then rose again victoriously and ascended back to heaven with all glory and honor. So again, number one, Paul's making it clear Jesus has the right and the authority to give us gifts. And the amount of gifts that we get is because of his measure. He determines, not us. Moving along, because there's a lot to cover. I can't hang out too long on each point. Number two, Paul tells us the purpose of our gifts. The purpose of our gifts. Let's pick up verse 11, and we'll read to 13. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
So Paul, he does something sort of weird here. He, he tells us that Christ not only gives us believers, us Christians, spiritual gifts, but he also gave the early church gifted men. Gifted men to temporary church offices and church positions. And just looking at each phrase real quick, and again, this is not the point that, that Paul's trying to make here. If you want a list of all the gifts that the Bible says we've been given or different gifts that, that Christ gives, Matt just read Romans chapter 12. They're also found in 1 Corinthians 12. But for some reason, Paul doesn't list those out like he does in the other letters. He, he goes and he tells us about these gifted men that we've received. So an apostle means sent one. That's literally what it means, or, or messenger. And there's apostles of Christ who were specifically chosen by Jesus, who had seen the resurrected Christ. These are called apostles of Christ. But I think what he's talking about, it could be these apostles, but more so the apostles of the early church, which were messengers for the church. And that's the more general use of the, of the word apostle. And then you have the next set of gifted men is prophets. And these weren't ordinary believers with like the gift of prophecy. This is a little bit different. These are specially commissioned men in the early church. They sometimes spoke practical, direct revelation for the church from God, or they further explained an already spoken revelation that God gave. And their messages were judged by other prophets for validity, and they had to confirm the teachings of the apostles. And that was set up so that you could just make up these false things about who God is, uh, sort of like a checks and balances. The next we see evangelists. These are men who proclaim the good news of salvation in Christ Jesus to unbelievers. And as I read this, I thought, first and foremost, Billy Graham. All right, I was just thinking, man, that is someone who has the gift of evangelism. Just because you're a pastor or just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you have the gift of the evangelist. Right? These are people who proclaim the good news to unbelievers. Something about it just clicks, and they can strike up conversations about Christ with unbelievers. And then the last one is shepherds and teachers, which will clump together. Um, most commentaries believe that when he uses these two words, they're, they're kind of clumped together. And think of the teaching shepherd in the church, an elder, an overseer. So we have all these gifted men in the early church that had a specific task at that time. Their job was to what? Equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. And I think the next logical question is, well, who are the saints? What does that mean? According to the Bible, if you're a believer in Christ, you're a saint. So what he's talking about is, there seems to be this flow chart. Jesus gives us gifts and gifted men. These gifted men use their gifts to equip the believers so that the believers can then use their gifts to go out and to minister. They use their gifts to tell others about Jesus. And because of this, the body, the, the church, the capital C global church, is being built up. And what happens is I think many Christians tend to say this. They think that it's only the pastor's job or the missionary's job to minister to people. Right? Some, some of us, we might hide behind this phrase, well, it's not my gift, so I'm going to let someone else do it. Right? I, I, I don't have that gift, so I'm just going to quietly sort of step away and, and let others handle it. Paul tells us that the purpose of our gifts, that when Christ gave us his, our gifts because of his grace, it's to build up the body of Christ. It's to glorify Christ. All saints, all Christians are responsible for this, according to what we just read. Our gifts were given to us by Jesus to build the church. We all have a unique gift that empowers us to fulfill this task. 
And I think what happens, especially in America, and I'm not saying this about our church or any church in particular, but a lot of churches have now sort of made church into a spectator activity where people just come in and they, they quietly come in and they sit on the pew and they're just sitting there and they're like, wow, this is so great. Wow, this is great. Thank you so much. And then maybe they clap or they say amen and then they leave and they don't think twice about what was said. They go home and don't use their gifts. They go home and they forget everything and it just turns into being a cheerleader for other Christians. The Bible says we're not cheerleaders. Jesus tells us to go out and to make disciples. We are on a task. Francis Chan also has this analogy and I, and I love it. He said, imagine you give the Bible to someone who is on a deserted island and all they know about God and theology and the church is found in the Bible. If they were to, to read it over and over and they had it memorized and they knew everything, and then they came back to America and came into a church service, Francis Chan said, how shocked would they be? And I'll be honest with you, when I read Acts chapter 2, where it says the believers devoted uh, themselves to each other and to the apostles' teaching, they broke bread, they served each other, they loved each other in a supernatural gifted way. And sometimes I read that, I'm like, Man, where, where's the disconnect? Why don't I see this in churches? What's going on? Again, I think American church in particular has turned church into a spectator activity. And I think leaders in the church have also raised church members to act this way. No, you sit there and just clap and sing along with us, but, but you don't need to do anything, right? We, we foster this idea that we just sort of sit and we be the cheerleaders as Christians. That's not what God says. That's not what Paul says. And that's, I think, what the problem is with modern-day churches, right? We, we turn it into this more of a visual thing. We sit and listen, and then we go home, and we come back and sit and listen, and we go home, and we don't do anything. Point number three, which leads into this, but the importance of maturing in our faith. I think sometimes church is like a spectator activity or like watching a football game. You sit in the crowd, and you cheer on because the church is full of immature Christians, the church is full of men and women who don't know their Bibles. And because the leaders are fostering that environment, fostering that, them to sit there and to spectate, that's an issue. And Paul points out we have to be maturing in our faith, verses 14 to 15, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craft, craftiness and deceitful schemes. I said this a few weeks ago, but I actually went to Google. I had my Bible open. I had a bunch of commentaries. And I just went through each letter in the New Testament. In every letter, except two or three, they all have a warning. They all share a warning to be on lookout against false teachers and heresy. And Paul is now seen here warning the early church in Ephesus about the dangers of an immature faith. He uses the ex example of being tossed to and fro by the waves. I think of, of, a, of a ship in the ocean that's not anchored down, right, and a huge storm comes, and they have nothing to do except follow the wind wherever, or, or follow the waves wherever the waves bring them. Or even like a plastic bag or, or anything light or like a balloon or whatever, like something light, when the wind blows, it just goes wherever the wind goes. And that's the analogy that Paul is telling us. We should not be like that. And here's a, just a few things about immature Christians. Immature Christians do not know the word of God. They don't. They don't know their Bible. If you think about it, if you are being led astray from the truth, 
you don't really know what the truth is. And I was just thinking, I was, I was equating it to, imagine you're following a map. You have, you have a map in your hand, and it's saying, go this way, and there's a fork in the road, but your friend says, hey, you've got to go that way. But the map says to go this way. And they're like, well, the map says that way, but I, I trust you, and, and, and I like you, so I'm going to go that way instead and, and not listen to the map. And you, when, we, when we replace that as God's word as Christians, right, God's word says this, but my friends and the other churches and some other pastors who I like and enjoy, they say that. And instead of, of looking at God's word, a lot of people will just go like this. Oh, well, you say that? I'm going to go over here. Or, or, I, or you say this? Oh, I like that idea. I'm going to go over here. Right? They don't know their Bible. Jesus even said this, my sheep know my voice. My sheep know my voice. In 1 Thessalonians, we're told to test everything. Test everything Hold fast to what is good, to what is right, to what is true. Compare it to the word of God. I think there's too many times where we, we have these Christians who are like, oh, I, I prayed the prayer of salvation, and I have a Bible, and then they put it on their shelf, and they're like, yeah, I'm a Christian, and then they hear something, and they're like, ooh, that's a good point. I like what this person's saying. And then it's like, oh, wait, you say this? Oh, I like what you're saying. And they don't look at the word. They don't look at the Bible. Again, immature Christians do not know their word. Number two, immature Christians avoid conviction. <clears throat> avoid conviction. Paul puts it this way in his letter to Timothy. <clears throat> For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine. That, that's scary. That, that is alarming but according to their own desires, will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. And what he's saying is people are not going to have any interest in God's word, in anything challenging. Yes, there's joy in God's word, but there's also conviction. There's also the truth of the gospel that, hey, listen, we don't have it all together, that we need Christ to intervene on our behalf that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And what Paul's saying is people would rather have their ears tickled by these cute, you know, charming, motivational speakers. There's no depth to what they want to learn about. Again, that's a problem, I think, with a lot of modern-day sort of cutesy, charming sermons or preachers. There's no depth. It's all surface-level nonsense that makes people happy rather than holy, rather than sanctifying, it just makes them happy. And like a tree, when a storm comes, there are no deep roots, it'll fall over and collapse. I thought a few months ago of that crazy windstorm that we had. Does anybody remember that? It was, I think it was in August. Um, I don't know why, but I was out and about, and I was like, this is how I die, okay. Like, trees were literally falling all over, and like, what, what am I doing? And I went to my parents' house, and this huge tree that our neighbor has completely fell over. It's, it's huge. The, the trunk was, I don't even know how thick it was. Like, it was huge. Yet, the little tree in front of my parents' house withstood the storm. And I'm looking at it, and I'm like, how did this little thing withstand that storm? And this huge tree didn't. It's all about the roots. It's all about how deep it goes. And the same is true for Christians. As we mature, we grow deeper in our faith. We have a strong and firm foundation on who Christ is, on his word. And even Jesus said it on the Sermon on the Mount. At the end of it, 
he tells a, a little bit of a parable or a story about the, the foolish man who built his house on what? The sand. And the wise man who built it on the rock. It says the, the storm hit both of them. It hit both those houses. The rain fell. The floods came up. The wind blew against. And at the end, the wise man who built it on the rock, his house withstood the storm. And it says great was the fall of the foolish man's house. Again, immature Christians, they tend to avoid conviction. There's no depth to what they believe. And I was listening to a sermon a few months ago, and, and I was really just sort of trying to listen. Uh, sometimes I put out a sermon, and I'm like, ooh, it's like some good background noise. I'll, I'll pick up on some nuggets here or there. But this one, I was intentionally listening, and it was about 30 minutes long, which I'm not attacking the length of, of how long a sermon should be. But the person who is, I'll, I'll do this, preaching, he didn't read one Bible verse until the 25th minute of a 30-minute sermon. So again, I, I questioned, how can you preach God's word without you know, actually opening it up and reading God's word as a pastor, as a preacher? How is that possible? There's no depth. Paul's warning is that people are, it's going to become a time when people don't care about what the Bible says. They don't care about sound doctrine. They'd rather go and go with the flow and, and avoid conviction and rather feel happy, not step on anybody's toes. And I've got to say this, and this isn't in my notes, but the gospel, the Bible, what Jesus says, it goes against society. I don't know if you pick up on that. Jesus says the world's going to hate us because we follow him. The gospel is offensive because it cuts down to the root of a heart condition and says, you are not good enough. I am not good enough. You are not good enough. And we don't have to be because Jesus was good enough. But that message is it's pretty offensive. The last thing about an immature Christian, and then I'll move on to the last point here, is an immature Christian does not balance truth and love. They don't balance truth and love. Verse 15, rather, speaking the truth and love, we are to what? Grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And I think we've all heard that phrase, right? Truth, truth, and love. You got to show truth and love. You have to show truth and love. And I, I have a little thing I made here. It took hours to make. Just kidding, it didn't take hours. But I use this analogy with the youth group. Right on one side we have truth, on the other we have love. And I think of, of, of our Christian walk as a tightrope, right? And, and, and people who, who are on tightropes, they use this to counter their weight. It helps them to stay on their track, on their wire. And as Christians, if we show too much truth, right, and, and we, we're heavy on the truth side without any love, what? They're gonna, we're going to fall. And the same thing with too much love, with no truth, right? You're walking on the beam, you're walking through your life. You're, you're going to fall over. And because of this, truth without love, right? If it's all truth and no love, how cold is that? How, how off-putting is that? I don't know if you've ever been spoken to with someone giving you all truth and no love. You tend to, to, to not listen to them. You, you lose people. If you tell them, if you hit, hit them over the head with all truth and no love, right, you lose them. They get offended. And on the flip side, if you're all love with no truth, that's just as bad. How can you correct someone truly, correct somebody, if they don't know the truth, if you don't tell them the truth, and if you just, well, we got to love them. we got to love them. we got to love them. There's a danger to going too far on each side, on either side. And as Christians, as mature Christians, we learn how to balance that. 
We learn how to balance that, especially when it comes to evangelism. Evangelism is most effective when truth, when the gospel is proclaimed in love. When the gospel is proclaimed in love, truth in love. So again, Paul tells us that believers, Christians, we should be maturing in our faith, speaking truth in love, and growing in the knowledge of Christ. And then it leads to my last point. Or I should say Paul's last point. The importance of each unique member. Each unique member. Verse 16. From whom the whole body, joined together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And I ask this question, how does the body grow? According to verse 16, how does the body grow? When each part, when each member is working properly. What that means is as a church member, you're you're not off the hook, I'm not off the hook that easily. It's not the pastor's job to build the church. Yes, the pastor should be leading the charge, Yes, the pastor should be equipping the saints for the work of ministry, as Paul mentioned, but it's not the pastor's job to save the church. We, we as New Village, we're looking for a pastor. If we expect this guy to come in and to save our church and to be our savior, we're in trouble for disappointment because that's not his job. Jesus is our savior. God builds his church. But if you read that carefully, the body grows. The church grows when each of us are using our gifts and doing our part, right? And, and maybe some of us, we don't come to church because ah, we don't feel like it. I had a, I had a late night Saturday. I don't, I don't really want to come to church. Or maybe I don't want to serve because nah, someone else will do it and they'll do it better than me. I, I don't want to do anything. I just want to sit and listen, right? When we don't use our gifts that, first of all, Christ gave to glorify him, we're abusing our gifts. We're abusing what Christ gave us. And the body suffers. The church suffers. Christ has given each one of us a unique gift that is specifically for building the body. Not for your own glory, not for someone else's glory, for Christ's glory, for building the church, for building the body. How selfish is it if you don't use the gift that God's given you? You are harming the body and abusing the bride of Christ. A very godly pastor that I trust, in, in one of his commentaries, he said this about this section of Paul's letter. Godly biblical growth results from every member of the body fully using his or her spiritual gift in submission to the Holy Spirit and in cooperation with other believers. Let me, let me just read that again. Godly biblical growth results when every member Every believer of the body is fully using his or her gift in submission to the Holy Spirit and in cooperation with other believers. It's not about the light shows in church. It's not about the best performing artist in a church. It's not about how great of a communicator the pastor is of a church. It's not how great our outreach or children's program is that draws people to church. According to what Paul says, when each of us, when each member of the body is using their gift 
in line to what the Holy, in submission to what the Holy Spirit says, the body grows. There's godly biblical growth. And I just want to be careful, and I don't want to say we got to use our gifts to make New Village the biggest church in the world. But rather what Paul's saying, and there should be some sort of clear indicator here, when we go out and we're using our gifts and we're making disciples, we're making more Christians, or we're building Christ's body. And if you think of that locally, the more Christians there are in Lake Grove and Center Reach, the more Christians that are wanting to go to a church. So yeah, the local church will have an increase when we use our gifts, but we shouldn't use our gifts to say, oh, we got to bring in a thousand people into New Village. No. First and foremost, we build the body. We build Christ. And it should result in more people wanting to come to a church to what? Mature in their faith, to learn more, to grow deeper, to hear the word, and to do the word. And then lastly, again, what, what builds the body, right? So when each, each member is working properly, doing their part, but the last word, love. It builds itself up in love. Loving Christ with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Love is the fuel that should be prompting us to use our gifts, to build the church, to build the body, to make disciples. If we truly loved Christ, we should want to constantly be in his word. Right? The devotion shouldn't be a chore on a checklist that you do, okay, I did my devotion, oof, I'm good for the day. That was a close one, I almost forgot. A lot of times we treat it like that. As Christians, if we truly love Christ, this is, how we, this is how we learn. This is how we spend time with him. We should want to be in prayer. We should be wanting to grow in our faith, grow in maturity, learning to use our gifts. Because God, Christ gave you, he gave me a perfect gift that will help us, that will help build his body. How, how encouraging is that? On top of all the other gifts we've received, you know, salvation, uh, eternal life in heaven with our Savior, no sickness, sorrow, or shame in heaven, a restored relationship. Christ says, you know, I'm going to give you more. I'm going to give you a gift. And that gift, when you use it correctly, it's going to help you out, and you're going to be making disciples. You're going to be building the body. If we truly loved others, right, love has to be fooled. If we love others, we'd be telling them about Jesus. A few summers ago, I had, um, I think, you, you know, and Pastor Jason um, he's preached a few times here. He did well, We did a, something called Teen Week, and we had the kids come, and it was sort of like a, a youth rally for a whole week straight, the week of EBF at night. And he said this quote, and, it, and it's always stuck out to me, and I, and I truly never picked up on the, the depth and the conviction of what he said. This is what he said to the kids. The greatest act of hate, the greatest act of hate you can show someone who's a non-believer is not telling them about Jesus. Think about that. The greatest act of hate is not telling someone about Jesus, not sharing the gospel, not sharing the good news. As Christians, we know where our neighbors, our family, our friends are going to spend eternity if they're not in Christ. And I heard that, and I was like, ooh, that, that stung. And I was like, I, I fail at this. I, I fail at this a lot. I I don't think of it as that extreme, but the Bible is clear. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one gets to the Father except through me. So Paul's telling us love needs to be our motivation, right? It's not to boast about how many disciples we've made. Oh, oh God gave me this gift, and guess what? I, 
I made seven disciples this year. Or not about building our literal church building, but it's the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, making disciples. And it's because of love. When each one of us as a believer is using our spiritual gifts, the body grows. Again, I, I have a lot of fear sometimes, especially when, when we just put so much pressure on a missionary or pastor and we, and we make them the savior of the church. That's not what God's word says. God's word is clear. We're all charged with the same mission to go out and make disciples. Yes, a pastor should lead the charge. A godly pastor will equip us as the church to go out and to better use our gifts. And that's what I'm looking for in a pastor that's what I'm looking for as we, as we vote on a pastor to come here, not to be our savior, but to be our shepherd, to equip us, to, to have love be the fuel, love be our motivator. So again, the four points of what Paul says, Jesus has the authority, has the right to give us gifts. The purpose of our gifts is to build up the body. We should strive to mature in our faith, and each unique believer is important for building the body in love. And I just want to say this, I, I was really struggling with this part two of my sermon because part one was sort of the, hey, we, we're in this together. And then this one is, is, is a little bit more challenging and convicting. And, and again, it might sound like I'm, I'm not yelling at anybody, but as I'm reading God's word, you know, my, my heart is being transformed and my mind, and I'm thinking, man, we could use this. Imagine using your gift, knowing your gift, praying to God, maturing in your faith. What's better than that? What, what, that should bring you the most joy. I don't know if you've ever had the, um, and, and I'll close with this, I don't know if you've ever had the joy of leading someone to Christ. Man, you, you want to go and, and shout from the mountains how, how happy you are. When, when the gospel clicks with an unbeliever, right, God's invited us into that process. Yes, God transforms hearts, but we're also told to go out and make disciples. Again, it, that's the joy when we use our gifts, right? It, it's not too late. It's not like, oh, no, I, I haven't used my gift in a few years. God's taken it away from me. I don't see that in Scripture, right? We can start today, start this week, earnestly get along with God and pray, God, what is my gift? How can I use my gift to serve the body? How can I use my gift to tell others about the the love of Christ, the gospel. And we as your elders, we, we love you. It is our job without a pastor right now to be leading this charge, to be equipping you. If you have any questions about anything I've said, please talk to us. Talk to the elders. We, we'd love to help you out, to help mature you in our faith. We, we could all use more maturing in life. If you're ever content with your faith, that's an issue. You should always be wanting to be sanctified further and further, growing in your faith and love of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much. We thank you so much that you've given us so many gifts. You've given us salvation. You've given us forgiveness. Jesus, we thank you for the, the gift of the cross, that you died for us. Jesus, and we thank you that you've equipped us in a unique way to build the body, to go out and to make disciples. Jesus, I just pray that this week we can spend some time alone in your word, maturing in our faith, wanting to spend time to learn about how to use our gifts to serve you, 
to bring you glory. God, I pray that our church never loses sight of our mission to go out and to make disciples. So God, I just want to pray that as we're just being a church without a pastor, I pray for um, just unity amongst us. Lord, I pray that whatever, whoever we bring in, whoever you bring in our church, Lord, we don't make them our savior. Lord, you're our savior. We thank you, Jesus, and in your name we pray. Amen.